I love this passage. I love the book of Acts. It is one of the first history books of the early church. It covers about a 30-year period after the resurrection and certainly before the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in AD 70. And the kind of atmosphere of that book, in many respects, we can all identify with because there was a, the rapid spread of Christianity. There was opposition from the Jews, confusion by the Romans, persecution, all kinds of things. So it's a very real life setting. And uh, I, have, I like to give titles to what I'm thinking about. Sometimes it helps me just to focus. And I uh, am going to entitle our thinking, The Happy Apologist. Now that might need a little bit of explaining. Twice in that reading, the word defense appears. Apology, in this sense, doesn't mean a pathetic, oh, I'm really sorry for what I believe. <laughs> it doesn't mean that. It means to give a reasoned defense. The word defense is the word apology. Uh, that's really the title of it, the happy apologist. Because why is Paul happy? He's in chains. He's before the authorities. They have the power to do with him uh, as they see fit. Why is he happy? Well, I want to, to explore that. I also thought about entitling it Paul's Day in Court. Except Paul had several days in court or in several courts. So it wasn't his only day in court, but it was one of them, and it was a significant event. Now, the credibility of the Christian faith is always, it's always faced challenges and questions and issues from thinkers and non-thinkers. And that continues uh, from right up to the present hour, from, from then. Uh, and sometimes people naively think that, well, in those days, you know, they believed were a little bit open to anything, to believe anything. That's complete rubbish. They were deep thinkers. And some of the things that people think about now, they started. In the first century, the Romans had the political power, but the Greeks had men's minds. And the Jews made a powerful impact on religion. So it's a real mixture of all kinds of things that you're entering into in this world. And uh, the credibility, as I say, of the Christian faith is constantly challenged. And it's interesting that even in this, the current climate in which we live, where we have what, 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 what the media sometimes call the new atheism. Uh, it's a strange title in some ways. I think it's because people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, people like this have kind of... Uh, kind of really taken up a fresh challenge to promote atheism. And I've just read Christopher Hitchens' book called God is Not Great. And it's an attack on all religion, not just Christianity. But there's often a special boot put in to Christianity. And what I discovered from a friend of mine, I didn't know this, Christopher Hitchens is a British journalist, but I think he spends most of his time in the States. And he... Um, and incidentally, he's now currently got cancer and he's critically ill. Uh, I don't know how, if, what his present condition is, but it, it's a terminal cancer that he has. And he's been quite realistic in terms of not changing his mind. And I discovered that he has a brother who's a Christian. He's also a journalist called Peter Hitchens. And he's written a book called The Rage Against God. And I've just read both books, and it's a really interesting exercise to compare the two lines of thought. So the whole idea of, you know, Christian beliefs 
being challenged and contested and so on. It's not new and it's not done. It's still going on. So, so come with me kind of into this story and let's try and learn a few things. It's impossible to, to, to delve into everything, but let's get, let's get some things out of this. First of all, when did all this take place? More than 25 years, but less than maybe 30 years after the resurrection. After the first Easter. You're not very far into history. And this is happening. Paul's arrested without a proper reason. Now, we, we know about things. You know, people that are falsely arrested, it kind of stirs us up. We don't like that sort of thing. And we're very strong about it in this part of the world. Paul had been arrested without proper reason. He'd actually been imprisoned. There's a certain sense in which it was for his own protection. And this man who was preaching the gospel all over the, the place, circulating in the Roman Empire uh, and, and leading many people to faith, he is arrested. The Jews are after him because they see him as enemy number one. Um, the governor at this particular point is Festus. Felix has been the previous governor. They're dead easy to get these two mixed up. Uh, but Festus is the, the Roman governor in the place at that time. And uh, he wants a second opinion because this prisoner is appealed to, to Caesar. Now, in Roman law, if you do that, you've got to go. So he, he, he's a Roman citizen by birth, even though he's a Jew. He was born in Tarsus. He was a freeborn Roman citizen. And the Romans prized their citizenship. Some of their soldiers, the best deal they ever got for being in the army was to get a pension and Roman citizenship. That was prized by people. And, Roman, and Paul was a Roman citizen. So King Agrippa, uh, with his sister, is in town. And I'll say a bit more about Agrippa as we go on. But basically, he wants a second opinion. So they convene a big court. And we didn't read it, but in chapter 25, at the last part, it actually says this. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought to be to not to live any longer. I have found he has done nothing deserving of death. But because he's made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome, but I have nothing definite to write. So he wants a second opinion. So he can put something to the emperor and say this is the case with this man. This is, this is the, you know, this could be it, couldn't it? It's a grand occasion. There's a lot of people present. Some high dignitaries. Well, we're short of them tonight, but never mind. We can imagine what it was like. Now, here's another thing I need to point out to you. And then we're going to run through some, some, some things about this. Why I'm calling him the happy apologist. Luke, who wrote this, Dr. Luke, Christian, evangelist, historian, companion, traveling companion of Paul. Part of the reason he may have written these, there's a number of detailed accounts, is to actually demonstrate to the Roman Empire that Christianity was not an illegal religion. That was really important in Roman thinking. You had legitimate religions. You had illegitimate religion, religions. 
Legal, illegal. Permitted, not permitted. And there's a certain sense in which the whole of the book of Acts could be in part a demonstration to the Roman authorities that if you look into the history of Christianity, you will see that it has nothing that is out of order. That could have been part of his thinking. Now, surprisingly, perhaps, the prisoner is delighted by the opportunity to speak for himself. This is where we get into this now. And I'm going to give you five reasons, and I'll try and be uh, sharpish with each reason, so we're not going to be too long on each, but I want to make certain points. And the first reason that this man is happy to speak before King Agrippa in the presence of Festus and everyone else is that this king knew his subject, that is, Paul's subject, very well. Verses 2 and 3 make this clear, that uh, he says, I consider myself fortunate to make his defense before him today, and especially so, verse 3, because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. He was an expert in all the Jewish customs and controversies. Now you've got to note that. Now for that reason, Paul's very happy to speak in front of such a man. Somebody who knows what he's talking about. And he's recognized as such by the Roman governor himself, Festus. Because why, why does Festus invite Agrippa? Because he knows that he knows. Good man to have on the job. He's recognized as such by Paul the prisoner. So Paul's happy to speak in front of him. Now that's very important in life. You know, if you're going to be embroiled in some serious discussion upon which your life may, de- may depend, you, may, you, you really want somebody that knows what, what they're talking about. And that's the position he's in. Now this king, King Agrippa II, his great-grandfather had dealings with the wise men in Bethlehem. He went back a long way. You could not fool this man easily. So Paul considers it a really good thing to present his case to this man. All right? So that's the first reason why Paul's happy. He's got the right man in front of him. He knows what he's talking about. Okay? Let's get into it. That's what he says. Let's go to it. Second reason. Paul knew that his accusers knew him. Now again, this is very important. Uh, And we're going to actually learn a lot as we go through here about the Christian faith as well as about this particular Christian. Paul knew that his accusers knew him. Now why is that important? Well, look at verse 4. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it's because of my hope in what God has promised to our fathers that I'm on trial today. And I love the way he says in verse a little bit further down, O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And that is a question 
that we still all have to grapple with. Why should it be considered incredible that God should be able to raise the dead? And you will find that in this trial and previous trials and a lot of what's going on at the very heart of this whole man's life is the issue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, he was well known. He had undergone dramatic change. Now, it's interesting, probably, I don't know, what, 90%, maybe 90% of the people here would not know me. Now, as it happens, my, my wife is here, my sister is here, brother-in-law, niece. So there are a few people, Paul, who knows me a little bit, who knows me. But you don't know much about me, really. And you'd have to talk to me for a while to get to know. I can assure you, it's a very interesting life story. Uh, not really. But you don't know me. But when Paul was stood in front of these people, he had such a high profile that they all knew him. That counts for something. I mean, in actual fact, if you, you listen to some of the things I might say tonight, you might think, yes, or that. If you're, if you're a person that's thinking about Christian things, interesting. But then if, if you and I were to talk together, and actually I was to share a little bit more about myself, some of those things would, 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 would somewhat come at you with a different force or a different angle. These people knew him. If there was a, a newspaper called the Jerusalem Post or something like that, Paul's life had been headline stuff. The persecutor turned preacher. Something like that. His training, his track record, he was one of the most antagonistic, aggressive, violent opposers of the followers of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, that there was at the time. Now you can imagine the impact that could have. And they also knew about his total turnaround in his life. And the New Testament, Luke in Acts in particular, gives us several accounts or recall, records Paul giving accounts of what we call in Christian circles his testimony. He's testifying what's happened to him. <clears throat> so the whole thing was known to them. And again, I've already mentioned the resurrection, but let me, let me point you to something else. If you look down at verse 14, if you're following, um, he talks about, well, let, let me just, he talks about when he's with his partners and they're traveling together on their mission to arrest Christians. He's knocked to the ground. Jesus appears to him, confronts him, changes his life and so on. Uh, and the thing is, this is what it says in verse 14. We all fell to the ground. This is Paul speaking. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. That is the ox goads, against his conscience. There was, a, there was actually a turmoil going on in this man's heart. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And, and he says a little bit more. But the point I want to make here is this. That this whole man, this man's whole life and lifestyle and position, it all depended on whether or not Jesus was alive. That's what it was all about. So that's the second reason. First reason, the king knows his subject. Second reason, Paul knew that his accusers knew him. The third reason is, 
It was Paul's great pleasure to tell the king his message. The message that he once tried to obliterate, tried to destroy, tried to eradicate, is the very message he now preaches. And and not only does he preach it, he writes about it, he testifies to it, he lives it out, he believes it, he is effective in gaining the minds of many people on this subject. He actually says himself in verse 19, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First, to those in Damascus and then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. In other words, that they should confess that they are sinful, that they need a saviour, that Jesus is the the saviour for them and that then they should give evidence of that belief in a changed life, such as he had. And he said, this is why the Jews seize me. But I've had God's help to this very day. He's had protection. And then he says this, and this is important for Agrippa, and it's important for all his Jewish enemies around him. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer. And and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. So he, he is absolutely delighted to share this message and as far as his fellow Jews are concerned he's saying my message is OT Old Testament it's not OTT over the top because this is what God promised he would do and what happened in the life of Jesus his death, his resurrection that was all predicted and he says, I'm confident about it. So he's actually, part of his, 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 his happiness, as I'm calling it, he's a happy apologist, is that he, he is really glad to be sharing this message to these people, and particularly the king. Here's a real opening right into to, to government itself. And he's happy to take it with both hands and tell them the gospel. It was Paul's great pleasure to tell the king his message. And again, it centers, as you can see very clearly from these verses, it centers on the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Reason number four. Paul was very sure of his ground. It's interesting, I mentioned um, the Hitchens brothers. Peter Hitchens, who's the Christian begins his book by telling us the story. Now, I think it was before he went to university. I think he was 15. And he he made it been brought up in at least a nominal Christian home. And he made a, a little protest and he took a Bible and he attempted to burn the Bible. And he and he did that because he wanted to sort of sever his links with his Christian past. And he sought to burn the Bible. Now he says that the actual attempt was a bit useless. You know, it's actually, it's actually quite difficult to burn a Bible unless you've got a really good fire. And he ended up with like a half-charred, incompletely burned Bible, as it were. And, and he, he almost felt that that was somewhat symbolic, symbolical, that he hadn't quite got rid of it. But later on, as a Christian man, and it's some years later when he becomes a, a, a sincere and a committed Christian... 
he, he's very sure of his ground. And if you read his book, it's, 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 a, it's a very penetrating book in its insights. Brilliantly written. Both these brothers are journalists, so they both write well. But Paul's sure of his ground. Peter Hitchens came to a point where he's sure of his ground. This church, this church exists because it's sure of its ground. Not sure of itself, but sure of its ground. And so, just, just listen to, to, to what happens here. Just to demonstrate the, the, the solid certainty of Paul. Now, some might perceive that as arrogance. What you have to remember is where he'd previously stood. He burned, he raged against Jesus of Nazareth. Now he loves him. He was utterly opposed to Jesus of Nazareth. Now he submits every fiber of his being is submitted to Jesus. His whole life is about serving Jesus. It's not just arrogance. There's been something big has happened to him. Now verse 24, uh, and it's interesting. I just noticed even when Paul read it, the way he read it, it, you could see that it registered. And it does register, doesn't it? At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind. He shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Now, I know that everybody that just finished GCSEs and A-levels and maybe university, that's how you do feel it. Your great learning does drive you insane. But he's saying you're, you're studying Paul and it's, it's, it's driving you crazy. Now, that's how it starts off here. He wasn't the first to accuse a Christian of being mad. Uh, Jesus himself was accused of being insane on more than one occasion. It won't be the last either, will it? There are certain scenes in the Bible that I would love to have been present at. And those of you who read the Bible regularly and, and you know, you, you've maybe got favorite passages, if you get a chance to see me afterwards, just tell me. Uh, I'd be interested. What would be, your, what would be some of the moments you'd love to be there and see it happen for yourself? Just to be present. There's a few. Let me give you two. This is one of them. The other one is when Jesus is stood before Pilate. And, pa- and because Jesus won't answer Pilate, and give him what he's looking for. Pilate says, don't you realize that I have the power to put you to death or to let you live? I'm putting it in my words. And this man, he's got all the might of Rome behind him. All the power of Rome. And that's big. And Jesus just looks at him And he says, you could have no power over me except it were given you from above. I would love to have seen the face of Jesus. I would love to have heard the tone of his voice. I'd love to have seen the reaction of Pilate. Powerful. And here's another one of those moments. Because Paul replies... I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I, I am saying is true and reasonable. 
The king is familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa. So he's very sure of his ground. I would love to have heard him. I'd love to have seen him. You're talking about a man who's in chains here. You're talking about a man that's on his own here. You're talking about a man that is surrounded by people who are out to get him. And with this amazing sense of self-possession, he stands there and he confronts them all. And all down through the years, Christians in extreme danger have actually done that, astonishingly. Women and children, not just leaders like Paul. The king knew the facts. Things had been in the open for years. Paul could be not more sure, more composed, more clear. His life, his words were certain. The facts, truth was on his side. Some of you will be aware of this. Maybe others of you have got no idea at all. But the first kind of hundred years of Christianity, after Jesus had gone back to heaven, Holy Spirit had come... Christians began preaching all over the place where they were scattered by persecution. They just carried on talking about the gospel, preaching the gospel, living the gospel out. It is breathtaking, the growth through the empire. So that by about 120 AD, one historian writes that temples were abandoned everywhere. It's astonishing. And we don't, we're not taught about it. You've got to go digging into your church history books. Paul was uh, in a position that was monumentally, secure, monumentally, I meant. Secure, because it was so strong. And the facts were on his side. Not to mention the change that had been in his own heart. And the way he addresses this king is very interesting because he says, he says to the king, uh, I am convinced that, that none of this has escaped his notice. So that was the fourth reason. He was very sure of his ground. Now let's just recap, then we'll have the last reason. He knew the king knew his subject. He knew that the people around him knew him and his track record and his life and the change in his life. He was very confident of his ground. And he was great, full of pleasure, delight, gladness to, to share his message to the king and to everyone that was listening. The fourth reason, and this is where it gets a bit personal, and I want to kind of bring it to you personally. Now, I know that many of you are here because you already believe in the resurrection. You believe that Jesus died. Some of the wonderful songs that we've sung this evening, they, they've expressed your heart and your thoughts. But there might be others of you here that are still thinking it through. Who is Jesus? What is he about? Well, let me, let me just, on this fifth reason, say a few things. Paul desired to bring a personal challenge to the king himself. Now, for a number of reasons that I'm going to show you, this is really significant. Because in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? You know your Old Testament. Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. That's quite a statement, isn't it? 
Paul makes a direct personal question and he even dares to answer it himself. Do you believe it? I know you believe it. Uh, Paul's not this, is not, this is not unusual. The previous governor, you know, used to get Paul to come and speak to him. When he was in prison, he used to bring him to his office, if you like, and they used to talk together. And Paul used to talk, him about, talk to him about the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and judgment to come. Yeah, and to the point where Felix was, that's, that's enough for now, just backed off a little bit. So Paul knew that these men thought about these issues. And then Agrippa gets the point and it shows, do you think that you, in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Now listen, Agrippa had been brought up in the court of Claudius, the emperor. His mother had a peculiar and intense interest in the Jews. All of Agrippa's life, since he was a little child, he knew about these things. He learned about these things. He grew up breathing the atmosphere of the Old Testament. It's quite a remarkable thing. And Paul shows his heart, the heart of a man convinced and a man of passion and commitment. Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me may become what I am. In other words, a Christian, except for these chains. Except for these chains. There's a man whose heart is convinced. Now, I'm no Paul, but I have a desire that every person in this room would have exactly the same conviction as this man about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Not just because it's, it's a good thing to do, but because your life and your eternity Depends on it. For Paul, this was, this was critical stuff. He was eventually to die a martyr's death. You know, he laid his life down because of what he believed. Now, Agrippa the expert might not have come to personal faith, but you read at the end of the story, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. He's done nothing deserving of death. It's a kind of a political comment on the situation. Agrippa gives nothing away about his personal feelings and thoughts, and we get no insight into that. But the, the whole gospel thing, the whole Christian message, is credible, as far as Paul's saying. It is credible, and it still is. It is accessible. Agrippa... Everyone in this room, you can all have it. Accessible. It still is. Personal. It's for Agrippa and Festus and you and you and you and you. It still is personal. And it's powerful. Life-changing. Now let me say quickly a few things and then we're done. This king, I've mentioned this already, had a great-grandfather that tried to kill the infant Jesus. You know the Herod of the Christmas story. That's his great-grandfather. 
Herod the Great, he was a brute. This king, Agrippa, had a great uncle who killed John the Baptist at the whim of a dancing girl, had him beheaded. And the same, that same Herod was a virtual co-conspirator in the death of Jesus Christ when he teams up with Pilate and he mocks Jesus. That's his great uncle. This king also had a, a father, Agrippa I, that we read about earlier in the book of Acts, chapter 12, who killed James, a friend, and an, a friend of Jesus, a friend of, uh, uh, of Peter and John, and he has him killed in Acts chapter 12, an apostle of Jesus. Now, this is quite a family record, isn't it? You know, you go back through the generations and look at it. Look at this, look at this. Here the gospel is brought to this man in a most powerful and personal way. The offer of forgiveness, the offer of a new life in Jesus Christ starting from the day of that courtroom. Isn't that amazing? Some people, it's so amazing, some people might have problems with it. Because people have problems with forgiveness. And people have problems with the extent of God's forgiveness. I've got a friend that worked for years as the, as, the, as the director of a group of victims of terrorism in Northern Ireland. And the psychological struggles of people to cope with the whole question of forgiveness. It's massive. But then also sometimes individuals really struggle. Can God forgive me? Look at this man. Look at his family. Look at his record. In whatever situation um, Paul found himself, he was a blessing to those around him. Now, the king knew his subject well. If you're a Christian here tonight, how well do you know your subject? That's a challenge. Do you know it well? Paul knew that they knew him. Are there people who can see so clearly in your life that you really do believe in Jesus Christ that they look at you and they say, wow, this this man, this woman has changed. Can they see that? They should see that. Paul was really happy to tell the king the gospel. Are you, as a Christian, are you really happy to share it with other people? I know it's difficult sometimes and there's challenging situations, but when you do get a clear-cut opportunity, are you happy to grasp it? Paul was. Paul was very sure of his ground. Are you sure of your ground as a Christian? If you are a Christian, how well do you know your stuff? Belonging to a church such as this will enable you to grow stronger in your faith. You should be strong. You have every reason to be strong. And what about those of you who are still thinking? Let me say this to you just finally. In the gospel, God gets very, very, very personal I don't know your life but he does in one sense I've got no authority to say look you need to shake up but God does he gets personal well it was an interesting day in court you've been in the public gallery now you can go away and think about it and I trust God will help you to do that